And tonight I want to talk about one of the uh, famous three characteristics of existence that the Buddha spoke of so often, that of impermanence <coughs> or anicca. And if you, if you read any of the suttas at all, you see how incredibly often the Buddha speaks about the importance, really the centrality of um, coming to understand and really to have insight into this truth of impermanence. It's one way he said it. Bhikkhus, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual lust, it eliminates all lust for existence, it eliminates all ignorance, it uproots all conceit, I am. When the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated. So those four things are basically saying that's complete liberation of heart and mind. Lust, lust for existence, uproots of ignorance, uproots all conceit, I am. But what I think is really interesting about this particular quotation is the way he says it's the perception of impermanence that we need to develop and cultivate, the emphasis on perception. So I just want to talk a little bit about that perception and really accurate perception is the nature of insight. So just to introduce that and then talk some about the perception of impermanence. Why don't we perceive it if that's how things are? So perception, you know, is, is one of the five qualities, the five aggregates that arise in every moment that the Buddha talked about as comprising a human being. And that's a whole other talk, the five aggregates. <clears throat> the mental, is, rupa is form, and then the mental qualities arising every moment are uh, consciousness, just the, when there's an ear, there's a sound, there's consciousness, so the knowing of the sound comes together, that happens. So there's consciousness, there's perception, which is there's the sound and that moment of recognition based on memory and experience. So say, if you hear this, there's hearing and just bell, knowing it's bell. That's the perception. It might be stronger, oh, that's the bell in the meditation hall, that's the spirit rock bell, or just knowing bell. It may be in words or not, but that knowing of what it is is what's called perception. That arises, as the Buddha said, with every consciousness. Also, then, the third mental quality is Vedana, this feeling tone, this feeling experience as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's a mental, it's a mental feeling activity. And then the fourth is all the other mental formations, Sankara's, all the other mental formations. So perception arising in every moment of conscious experience. And perception is really key. Remember the other night I, I mentioned how the Eightfold Path begins with right view, translated often as wise understanding. But personally, I really like the way it works in English as right view, like actually seeing, the way we use see to, in a way to cover all the senses to understand, seeing accurately, perceiving accurately. So right view, in, for example, the, the perception of anicca, the perception of impermanence, would be when, in a moment, we're actually perceiving. 
the constant flux, the constantly changing nature of things. And so, of course, we're not constantly perceiving this, are we? We're not always even aware of what we're perceiving. Often the perceiving is just, you know, assumed in the background because it's happening every moment. But when we talk about the nature of insight, after all, this is translated as insight meditation. So some of you might be waiting, when's it going to happen? Happening all the time, all the time. It's not such a big thing, but insight isn't that, for instance, it'll stick to Anicca, it's not that until you have insight, really everything is kind of static and unchanging. But when you finally achieve a certain you know, depth of practice, then impermanence opens up to you and everything starts moving and flowing where before it was static. I mean, you know that doesn't make sense, right? Right? It's like the perception shifts, but reality or the nature of things hasn't changed at all. We're just perceiving differently. So the nature of insight is kind of not a thinking about, it's not intellectualizing, but it's on the level of, oh, it's like this. You know, when you've been like mulling over a problem, trying to figure out whether it's in math or whether it's, you know, how to do three things that you have to do in your day or whether it's, you know, anything, any kind of problem. You're thinking, you're figuring, you're writing it down, you just can't figure it out. And you just let go, you put it down, and that's when all of a sudden, oh, something goes on in the background and suddenly you see a possibility that never came to the thinking mind. That's an insight. So a Dharma insight works in the same way, but just seeing where the nature of nature, how nature really is. It doesn't have to stay, but it changes at least a little bit how we think about things and our view of things. So like, you know, the, the trompe l'oeil things where the, the, the classic kind of drawing where if you look at it one way, it looks like a vase, the vase is dark and the other outlines of it are white. And then when you shift the other way, it's a profile of two faces looking at each other. Both are there, aren't they, in the thing? It just depends how you look. And when you've only seen one and you haven't, the mind hasn't kind of relaxed, the eyes haven't relaxed and you don't see the other, you only see the one. Once you've seen them both, you've seen them both. And even if you can only kind of look at one at a time, you know the other one's there, right? It has a, an effect in how you think about that drawing and how you understand and the assumptions you make and decisions you might make. I mean, no big decisions from that, hopefully, but... You get, a, you get a sense of what I mean, right? So <laughs> that's how it is with um, insights. So taking insight into impermanence, there'll be just on some moments, and it can be in a gross way, it can be in a subtle way in your practice. It's no one way. These kind of shifts happen all the time. But, you know, suddenly you just notice, oh, my moods are changing all the time. Things are changing all the time. There's nothing really solid here. And you just, when you're really seeing it as an insight, on a deep insight level, there's not fear because it's just as, oh, that's just how it is. There's just not a question about it. That's just how it is. When we're first intimating into it, and I'll talk about that later, but the insight isn't quite there, then sometimes fear does come. 
But this level of perception is so key. The Buddha also talked about how it affects our thought and our views. He talks about um, inverted or perverted, upside-down perceptions that we have a habit of, one of which is the inverted perception is that uninstructed worldlings, <laughs> which is a word they use a lot, puttajana, uninstructed worldlings, we're not completely enlightened yet, have a tendency to perceive what is anicca, what is it constantly changing. We perceive it as unchanging, as steady. What we perceive, distortion of perception, we think about, leads to distortion inversion of citta, of mind, how we think about it. Maybe not even consciously, but we're kind of assuming permanence, and then that's how we think about stuff. Oh, in two years, this is what I'm going to be doing next May. I mean, we, st- we do that. Now, we can do that by assuming permanence, or we can do it knowing, as Ajahn Chah says, this is not certain. Two different ways of relating. But when we're assuming permanence, we're perceiving permanence, we think about it as permanent, and then how we think about things leads to ditti or view. Remember, the first step of the Eightfold Path is samaditti, wise view. Wise also compares with micha ditti, wrong view. Wrong in that it's mistaken, thinking that there's permanence. So how, in a moment of insight, even a little moment of seeing, you know, the face and the vase and seeing, oh, there's two different ways of looking here. That shifts how we think about that picture and that'll shift our larger view. You wouldn't get into an argument with someone. No, it's only this way. I know it's this way. Because you know it's both ways. And so when insight arises in this way, it's not that that particular way of viewing, say, impermanence, is then with us forever. Because... Why is it not with us forever? (laughs) Nothing is forever, including us. But it has an effect on the thinking, on the mind stream, and on the view. It, It changes something fundamentally. But that's also why those of you who've been in practice quite a long time, after a while you think, I keep having the same insights. When am I going to have an insight into something new? You know, all right, I've seen impermanence, I've seen anatta, let's, you know, move it along. And there's not really that much new to have insight. Our personality, please, you know, it just keeps on cycling. But the, the, again and again, from different angles, it goes deeper. It cuts through the wrong view, the wrong conceptions, the mistaken perceptions more and more. And the more accurate perceptions get more accessible. So that's one way of saying it. So... On that level, when the Buddha's talking about, it's the perception of impermanence that is really what liberates our hearts, our minds, from clinging, clinging to sense pleasures, clinging to wanting to become, wanting to become a certain state, wanting to have a certain thing, that eliminates ignorance, that eliminates mana, the conceit I am, which can be very, very subtle, right? Just, I am the one who sees impermanence. Uh, You know? The mind does that. And then, go, oh, my mind does that. It's just anyway, the conceit I am. The perception. And this is why um, practice is so important, because this perception is not something we can talk ourselves into. And we've all 
I would imagine, of the three characteristics of uh, impermanence, of dukkha, of unreliability, of anatta, of not-self, the most intellectually accessible to me seems that it would be impermanence. We've all heard 10 million talks on it. We could all give 10 million talks on it. We could all make a million lists of how everything's impermanent, right? How much difference has that made in terms of freeing our hearts and minds? It, it, it doesn't work on an intellectual level. That's helpful information. Everything's impermanent. I know that. How come I don't live from that? I mean, you don't believe me. Maybe you do live from that. How come I don't live from that? You know? <laughs> because on, some, on a cellular level, on a cellular level, I don't always get it. Sometimes I do. But sometimes that perception of impermanence isn't accessible and the mind is acting and making decisions from, not really recognizing it, the wrong view of assuming permanence. So we can't talk ourselves into it intellectually. But, you know, the intellectual information might give us the stimulus to keep looking, to keep looking, see what's going on. So I'm not going to give you a million examples about how things are impermanent, you know, because I think we all know that. So I just want to talk about the different, other different aspects that come up in my mind. And one of them being, that's always interest to me, interesting to me, is, and this is just, I'm not trying to tell you, I'm just hoping if any of this is interesting or it sparks investigation, a moment-to-moment investigation into your own experience. So you don't necessarily believe anything I say. But what's always of interest to me is even intellectually knowing everything's changing. Sitting and walking and being in our life with so much change. Why do we cling? Why do we cling? Why is there this habit in the mind of clinging? And I mean, we know the classical uh, dependent origination, the one of Vedana, when there's not mindfulness and there's pleasant feeling in the mind tilts into it, begins to cling. That's true. That's on one level. So I'm talking on a little bit more kind of um, psychological level, maybe, just from my own experience. Because I find it really poignant. I think, I think Sally said something like this last night. I, it kind of all blends for us, just like it does for you. It's something about how even if what we're doing doesn't really lead to freedom from suffering, on some level, the motivation for our thoughts and actions, and really the motivation, I think, for clinging is this deep yearning for happiness, for peace. And we don't cling, we're not setting out to make ourselves suffer. We don't say, how can I spin in samsara a few more endless eons? You know, we really, in some way, the clinging is like an expression of our, of our deep yearning for happiness, for peace. I mean, it's an unfortunate expression, but it's really coming out of us. Not because we're just stupid jerks, you know. It's because somehow we're really trying to find fulfillment and peace and ease in this life. And it's so poignant because, of course, it's the thing that keeps the dis-ease going. So something I've seen in myself, you might see different things in yourself, but someone brought it up also in an interview, just mentioning how seeing how the mind likes a feeling of stability. The mind likes familiarity 
the mind likes comfort. Like it doesn't like this sense of everything's constantly changing and there's nowhere to land. And as soon as you notice one thing, the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and it's like this kind of sense of uh, everything's so erratic and nowhere to land and everything's so up in the air. The mind doesn't really like that unreliability. You know, you want something to land in. You want something to just take a breath and just, let's just stay like this for a few minutes, right? Even if it's, I think Sally said this too last night, even if it's an unpleasant personality pattern, at least, my God, it's familiar. Let's just hang out here for a few minutes, you know? Kind of our response to the unreliability of life is to hold on, to hold on. And of course, a lot of our practice is just to turn around and explore that the holding on actually strengthens the sense of disease and the sense of fear. Because we're holding on, it better not go, it better not go. You know, clinging and fear, they're right close together. But I find it not a judgment, but really quite poignant. We're clinging to any moment, like for a sense of something to hide the passing, to hide the impermanence. We actually don't want to see that. Or uh, uh, our illusion of control, you know, that we know what's going to happen, or at least we know the next thing. You know, we don't want to have to have this constant opening into the unknown. Give me a break, you know, let me just know what's going to happen next. Look at the schedule, know what we're going to do. Have you kind of sussed out how you spend your day and what's the best time to go to lunch and how's it going to be and when you take a shower and it gets totally thrown off if someone got off rhythm and they're in the shower at the time you decided to take the shower. That happened the other morning. It's like, no, no, this is my shower time. No one's supposed to be in. Everyone gets their little, you know, just, just sense of familiarity. And, you know, we do it in life and we do the same thing in practice. This is a quotation I love from somewhere in the suttas that I've not been able to find now where I found it. People always ask me. I'm just telling you, I can't find it. But I didn't make it up. (laughs) Somewhere. Buddha says, the search for a resting place is burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. The search for the resting place is burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. There's a lovely poem by Galway Canal. I'll only read a little of it because I just love this, the way he phrases it. Little sleep's head sprouting hair in the moonlight. That's the name of it. You scream waking from a nightmare. When I sleepwalk into your room and pick you up and hold you up in the moonlight, you cling to me hard as if clinging could save us. Just read me that little bit. As if clinging could save us. That's how it feels, isn't it? As if clinging could save us. But really it's more that clinging creates us. That's actually the thing. I have a good friend who said, I want, I need, therefore I am. (laughs) (laughs) Look and see. Look and see. So, <laughs> so I think when I, when I look at why we don't perceive, why we don't perceive the impermanence, why this perception of impermanence is so kind of hidden from us often. So one is what I was just talking about, kind of like a, a denial, a, a discomfort 
with the constant change and the looking to the wrong thing for security, looking to clinging. Another, um, it's a kind of a, a denial or resistance, and again, this is just something I've noticed in myself, this isn't some Buddhist list, that when we're not in the complete, completely die, when we die into the perception of impermanence, then it's just freedom, it's no problem. But when we're perceiving it a little and kind of back and forth, then for many of us at times, there's fear, as I said, or even more often when something that we were really counting on or used to or familiar, when it goes away or someone dies or just things change, there's often a real you know, sense of grief, sadness, poignancy, and just our general habit of resisting the unpleasant or painful emotions just kind of comes into experience here. You know, so you, see, you see things changing and there's a sense of sadness about it. And then right away, this is the, the micha ditti, the wrong view. Oh, it must be wrong because I feel sad. It can't be right. There's something wrong with this scenario. And sometimes, you know, we can kind of get caught in that, but there's a way of not just opening and seeing, yeah, it's ending. That's how things are. We're kind of like hiding a little bit from the sadness. But again, sadness is just part of life too. It's just another arising emotional, physical experience. And when we're not afraid of sadness, I think for most of us humans, until we're you know, really completely free from clinging, that many times when some major aspect of life, a person goes away, a situation goes away, or sometimes even an aspect of our personality that we're really comfortable with seems to go away. It's almost like there's a sense of, of grieving for that, a longing, a sadness. But if we just simply open to that, it's fine. That doesn't have to block our perception of impermanence. If we kind of recoil and shut down paying attention when the sadness, the grief comes, then, you know, we've shut down noticing. But I just want to read a couple of um, examples because it's really normal. It's what happens to everyone, the sense of sadness at great change. There's a lovely passage in the suttas when the Buddha is, has announced that he's, he's going to die in three months. And, you know, Ananda was his um, devoted attendant for 25 years. And Ananda, he's a lovely figure in the suttas. He's partly enlightened, but not completely enlightened. But he's always with the Buddha. He's the one who remembers verbatim all of the Buddha's sermons. So in uh, some of the suttas, if you read them, whenever it begins, thus have I heard, it's said that that's Ananda's voice, actually, after the Buddha died saying it. He's just... Maybe I'll talk about him another time. I really like Anand. He's kind of very human, kind of humanizes things. So at this point, the Buddha's announced he's going to die, and he's sitting, uh, giving a talk, and then he kind of notices that somehow Ananda's disappeared. So he says to the other monks, well, where's Ananda? Where did Ananda? Although, of course, he, of course, he knew where Ananda had gone. So he says, Ananda, overpowered by grief, he went aside and clasped the door jam and wept. And he was just weeping, saying, my teacher, who I've been with so long, is leaving. My teacher is leaving us. You know, how will I go on without my teacher? You know, it's really very touching. And um, it says this famous scene is often depicted in Buddhist art. So 
you know, of course the Buddha called him back, you know, Ananda, come back. And then he said just what you think of him to say, you know, he said, do not sorrow, Ananda. Have I not told you many times that everything changes and vanishes? How could something that has come into being not be destroyed? It is not possible. But then it's not like he's chastising him. He's just telling him, you know, this is really how it is. And then he goes on to really appreciate Ananda. You know, for a long time you've attended on the Tathagata gladly, sensitively, sincerely, without reserve, with deeds, speech, and thoughts of loving kindness. You know, he just says, you've made great merit, Ananda, and you will, you know, soon be free. So he's not like saying he's a stupid jerk, but he's saying, how, Ananda, how many times have I said? And there's other examples of this too. I might rerun later. So it's just human nature. When confronted with loss, when confronted with change, that sorrow and clinging and fear may come up. We don't need to be afraid of that. You know, that's not a problem. And when we can allow and open into the sorrow, into the fear, into the poignancy, a kind of tenderness comes, like a tenderness and appreciation for the fragility and vulnerability of all of life and for ourselves. And it really, at times, it transmutes from sorrow just to this, this tenderness that is open to all of life, all of life. That's only possible when clinging isn't trying to pick out one thing and say, this one has to stay, the rest can go, but this one's got to stay. Shuts us down, hardens our heart. So for me, I try to, uh, when I notice that sadness, I try to let it be a wake-up call. Oh, okay, what's, what's kind of not okay in this moment? It might be what's changing, or what am I resisting? Or Not to kind of say, oh, you should know better. Not like that. But more like the Buddha said to Ananda, it's not possible that anything, any conditions that came together, they have to go apart. Because that's how nature is. And sadness also will come together and go apart. It's just another arising aspect of nature. So I just kind of use that as a, a way to help me wake up. Another way that we don't perceive accurately is just plain misperception. Just perceiving wrong. And that's not always due to clinging, but sometimes just due to not really careful presence, not careful moment-to-moment presence, where, mm, like I was saying, if we don't, we're not used to perceiving the permanence, so the thoughts are things are permanent, the view is that things are permanent, a view in the background, and we're not thinking that. But, for instance, the assumption would be that when I get up in the morning, okay, that's already an assumption, I'm going to get up in the morning, that this hall is still here. And we walk up here and it's still here, you know? And mostly stuff like that happens. I do kind of, you know, have my schedule for 2010. (laughs) It's a trip. And very often, very often, maybe more often than not, this stuff actually happens. That kind of blows me away. You know, I remember once I was making an appointment to meet my friend at the Bangkok airport at midnight on some date, and it, you know, it happens, you know. I flew from Hawaii, and came from God knows where, and we met at the airport at Bangkok at midnight. How does this happen? 
you know. <laughs> but knowing that we don't know it's going to happen is very different from assuming permanence. So we don't notice, this is the point I was trying to get to, <laughs> that there's something that the Dalai Lama said once in talk I was here, we don't actually notice moment to moment the momentariness of change. So even when we are thinking or thinking that we're noticing change, it's more like, well, this came into being, it lasts a while, and then it goes away, right? That's change. Okay, this lasts a while, time in the middle? No, there's no lasts a while. Nothing lasts a while. There's absolutely no stasis. So that's what the Dalai Lama was saying. You know, we're really surprised when something ends because we were perceiving it as steady in the meantime. And that's misperception. That's not really seeing the perception of impermanence. I was having a conversation with someone today just about this. It was really, it was a lovely conversation. And the person was just saying that they were really noticing there's absolutely no stasis. And what they were remembering, it kind of was like a a metaphor for this, was having seen in the past, you know, um, um, what do you call it? My mind. Time-lapse film. A time-lapse film of something like a flower, you know, beginning to grow and growing and opening and budding and dying. And as the film, when it's speeded up, so you get to see the whole process. But what was so obvious in that process is there's no, it's not like it grows a little and then it stops, you know? <laughs> then it's bud, and then there's bud, and then all of a sudden it goes from bud, and then it's flower, you know? So there's bud and stability, then flower and stability, then dead, you know? It's like completely opening, 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 opening every single moment. There is no stasis whatsoever. And in every opening, you could say that's the ending of something else, but you can't even say this is the ending and this is the beginning. That's too solid. That's too separate. It's just opening, 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 opening. That's what really is the perception of impermanence. And the sense of watching the time-lapse film from here is also not quite accurate. You know, we're watching everything changing, right? (laughs) What's wrong with this picture? And uh, a friend said, I remember quite some years ago, someone who'd been doing a lot of practice for many, many years, she said, yeah, for years I've been seeing, you know, that everything around is changing. And suddenly, suddenly, this time I suddenly got it, oh, I, I'm also part of that constant opening flow. There's no me standing outside watching it. It's just this, this, all of us, every moment. When I was trying to describe a moment of chitta the other night, just a moment of of consciousness mind arising and everything that's happening within it, that's it. It's just this. There's no inside, there's no outside, there's no this watching that. It's just constant opening, 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 opening. That's it. From that perception, in that perception, there's no problem. How could there be a problem? What's the problem? What's to want? Wanting doesn't arise at all because it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Aversion to what? I mean, and what is there solid to have aversion? I mean, you're not thinking these things. That's just so obvious how it is. That perception of anicca really does shift something. 
yeah, it goes away again. And then there's me, and there's you, and it's solid, and it's time, and is she going to go over time talking, and you know, I need my shower, and, you know, and all of that. And there's wanting again, and there's aversion again. But then there's the, it was a real perception of nature as it is. This is also nature as it is, but it's not the only way. And that perception, we, can, we can't make it happen, but we can remember it. And sometimes just the memory, and the memory really needs to be one, this is where faith, where verified faith comes in. When it's not like that anymore, and you can't perceive it that way, if your mind starts going, I made that up, you didn't make it up. You didn't make it up. Just remember, oh yeah, sometimes it's like that. And it's always like that, but sometimes we perceive that it's like that. And that starts to have an effect on the mind stream, on the solidity of our views and assumptions. So that's part of how our, our, um, we misperceive, by not seeing that there is no stasis, the absolute, absoluteness, really, of change, of opening. So what really Well, the third thing I wanted to mention that supports misperception, that supports not perceiving impermanence, is actually inattention. Just, you know, just, you know, how we are. We pay attention for a little while, and we're mindful for a little while, and then we're not. And then we come back again, and then we don't. You know, there's a reason we're all blabbing all the time about, you know, continuity, continuity, continuity. It's not just because, you know, we you know, want to keep you quiet and working hard. But continuity doesn't mean you don't space. Of course, we can't control that. But it's more that willingness to just notice, 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 notice very, very steadily. Because it's lack of continuity of mindfulness, not continuity of slowness, not continuity of any particular experience, but continuity, steadiness of mindfulness, lack of that continuity is what hides impermanence. It's what feeds the perception of permanence because we don't really notice so much. So just I'll give little examples. And again, explore this. Don't believe me or not believe me. Well, you do whatever you do, but explore it. Please, I beg you, explore it. So for example, take emotion. You're having uh, a day or a couple of days where a really difficult emotional knot has been coming up, as does happen in practice, right? Maybe some memories come and you start to open to a particular feeling of rage or pain or memories that hadn't come before, or maybe it had come all too often before. So you you couple the emotional knot with total self-judgment and disgust that it's still here. Or maybe it's some kind of real happy feeling, a real kind of lightness. It doesn't have to be difficult. But something's coming. It's quite frequently arising. And you come in, and sometimes it'll show up. It often can show up when you're talking in an area. You say, oh, the last day was just, you know, so filled with negativity and self-judgment. The last day I've just been spinning in arrogance and pride. And, you know, when we think about it back, we really feel like that's an accurate description, you know. Because it was frequently there, and then as we think of it, oh yeah, arrogance is like this. As if it's the same way all the time. 
you know, arrogance comes up, some thought comes, and then a different thought comes, and we'll say, but it's still arrogant. We'll tell you, don't get into the content, it's all still arrogance. We'll say that, right? But it is different thought, different conditions, different feeling in the body, different intensity, different way it comes, different way it goes. But we can, even if we're really mindful of all that, then at some point we get distracted, or we get bored, or we get fed up with the aversion. I, I think I just, this is enough with the arrogance. I really need to calm down. I need to shift my attention. Sometimes we do, but sometimes it's just like, eh, enough already with this. And then we go for a walk, or we open to seeing, or it's mealtime, and we go and eat. And we didn't really have this moment-to-moment steadiness of awareness. So we're eating, and we're back. And during all that time, there was no arrogance, but we're not really paying that much attention. Then we come back, we sit down, we sit after two seconds. Oh, there's that arrogance. My God, all day with the arrogance. And we didn't really... If you stay steady, you'll see at some point, it really fades, it really goes, and it's really not there. It's really not there when it's not there. Instead, there was hunger, or greed, or happiness, or neutrality, or just hearing, you know? And if we're really present in that moment, we see others hearing. You don't have to think there's no arrogance, you don't have to think that, but you might just notice, oh, that, that's, it might just pop in, it's really not here now. And then sometimes we don't really, we're almost afraid to look. Oh no, if I look, I know it's really lurking underneath, right? Don't you think that sometimes? I didn't notice it during the meal, but that's just because I was avoiding it, but it was sitting there, there, in a big lump. And as soon as I came and sat again, there it was. And so then we assume it was here all day, right? Does this at all sound familiar at all? And so if we're staying steady, you'll notice actually when you were eating or whatever, it wasn't there. And the thought, oh, there's arrogance there. That's a thought. That's not the arrogance. So the steadiness, we really see the conditions come together, the arrogance comes, but it's a little different every time. It starts to fade away, and we're afraid to look because we don't want to see it again, so we space out. But if you kept looking, you'd notice it really does go away. And when it's gone, it's really gone. And then it comes back. That's okay. <laughs> the more you know it comes and goes, the less horrific it is when it's there, because you really know it's going to go. Even though with mental states, I think James kind of talked about this, and I've noticed it myself, one of the qualities of many mental states, really pleasant ones too, but the strong ones, is from within that mental state, it feels as if it's going to last forever, doesn't it? And I have a certain mental state that I just feel overwhelmed. I feel, oh, I just can't, I can't do this another minute. It comes up in my life or it comes up in practice. And the quality of that mental state is it's really unbearable, whatever it is, I can't. And I used to totally believe it. It was so, it, it just gave such a good line, you know, it was so convincing. And now when it starts, it, oh no, it's unbearable, there's no way. And my mind goes, oh, this is a mental state. It still feels the same, but as soon as I can say this is a mental state, I do absolutely know from all these years of watching that no mental state stays. I mean, really. You just have to reflect on one day. How many mental states have you had today? Although, I have a joke with Joseph. I have to say, just came in my mind, it's so here. Once we were teaching together at a retreat, and we just have very different temperaments. 
And so Joseph and I were, were talking, <laughs> we're talking uh, just, you know, privately. He would say, we've just been sitting. So he goes, so how many mental states or how many moods did you have in that last sitting? And I thought, well, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20, you know. And he goes, oh, my God. He said, I, maybe I had one. <laughs> and so we just have this joke. He would have, if I said, you know, no mental state last, how many of you had all day? He would have cracked up because he would have thought, maybe none. I didn't really have any mental states today. <laughs> so maybe you didn't have many mental states today. Maybe you're like that. But look back over the last year. Even he, over the last year, right? You had some mental states. Definitely some mental states came. Have they lasted? That's my point, anyway. Have they lasted? Has any mental state lasted your whole life? Even a week? I want to challenge you to say if it even lasts a day, if it even lasts an hour, if it even lasts five minutes without changing. And so the steadiness and just the willingness to keep coming back, keep coming back just to this moment, the steadiness of mindfulness, the continuity. That's when I said the wisdom arises, panya comes by itself. It does. It's not like you have to spend every minute like, let's see the beginning, let's see the end, let's see the change. Like, you know, that, that drives me crazy. But if you just steady, 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 what's happening now? What's happening now? What's the mind noticing now? Anicca is how things are. That's how nature is. We can't help but notice it. That's just how things are. If we just give awareness a chance by cultivating the steadiness of it. And so when I talk about awareness mindfulness, it's that sense of not looking for impermanence, not looking for anything, but that bare attention that's willing to just die into this present moment whether it's burning, whether it's arrogance, whether it's thinking, whether it's fear, whether it's joy, whether it's boredom, whether it's just sensation, whether it's hearing, just now, free of concept, free of the story. If there's story, it's all about me, that's the next arising thought. So nothing's extra, but just that immediacy of present moment bare experience. Sometimes I think of that as actually the ultimate renunciation, moment to moment just renouncing all the stories about me and our descriptions and what's more interesting and what I should do and blah, 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 to burning. Oh, just lifting if you're walking. Just rising if you're breathing. Just hearing. Just that. Just that. Just that. That quality of present moment, open, surrendered attention is what allows nature to reveal itself. When we're looking for, when we think we know, all that just gets in the way. You know, you know Krishnamurti's famous line, freedom from the known? That's really what awareness practice is about. In any moment, freedom from the known. Just that willingness to die into whatever's arising now and let nature reveal itself. This sense of um, this sense of continuity and the willingness to look can show. I was using arrogance as an example, but it can be very interesting when we come to see uh, the ideas and the views and the opinions we hold about ourselves, 
our whole personality belief system. That's called uh, identity view, Sakaya Ditti in the Pali, identity view. And um, I think it was Sally who was saying how often we hold on to even a negative or suffering idea about ourselves just because it's familiar. You know, often I've seen it too. Who would I be without my restlessness? You know? As I said, I've seen often in practice over many years that there's times when uh, a particular view or image or idea I'm holding about myself that I didn't even know. That came, oh, I'm this kind of a person, or I'm that kind of a person, or I couldn't possibly ever be awakened because, you know, I'm too hopeless. That's a big one. Um, And when some certain view, just through the steadiness of attention, you see how often it's not there, and it starts to fall apart. At times, I've really felt like it's a series of small deaths, really. And it's like a mourning, back to that sense of sadness or poignancy. Mourning some stupid idea I have about myself that only causes suffering. But still, it's who I am. You know, who I am. But the steadiness of uh, mindfulness can reveal this stuff. A friend, a friend who was uh, uh, working here one time gave us a great example. A person who self-identified as being an aversive type person, an angry type person. And not only did she self-identify that way, other people will say, yeah, it's true. You are an aversive type person. You are an angry type person. You know, A long, long-term meditator. She said one time she actually came in here and was sitting during one of these retreats and was just saying, I'm just going to watch my thoughts. And it was in the back of her mind, yeah, I'm really you know, an angry, aversive type person. So just through one sitting, she just stayed very steady without you know, blaming herself or judging, but just watching moment to moment to moment what was coming up in her mind, the emotions, the thoughts, the moods. And she said, yeah, there was aversion, maybe 10% of the stuff that came up. There was also many thoughts of generosity, many just kind of neutral thoughts, many thoughts of kindness, of metta, of compassion. And she came out saying, whoa, you know, that self, I'm an aversive person completely inaccurate, limited, wrong view. That's a kind of assuming a solidity, a permanence that just isn't there. We write these stories for ourselves and put ourselves in like the cage of this idea of who we are based on selective perception. So a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people, especially in this culture, tend to notice there's a lot of self-judging. I don't know if any of you have ever noticed that, but sometimes <laughs> we can really get into self-judging. And that's like hyper-vigilant for whatever particular thing your mind has decided to judge yourself about. And every time anything remotely touching on that comes up, oh yeah, jerk again, oh yeah, again, again. Then you walk out and there's moments of peace. Moments of joy, you go, well, that was nice. That was a nice little fluke. But back to the self-judging, that's who I am. So that's what we call selective perception. Picking out the perception, not consciously, of course, but picking out the perceptions that fit the unconsciously held view and completely ignoring or overlooking or discounting other ones. That's the power of moment-to-moment bare attention. We're not picking and choosing because we can't trust how we would pick and choose. It's just what's happening now, it's happening now, it's happening now. That willingness to be present 
And the insight, the shift of perception, the wisdom, it comes by itself. It really does. We have to do so much less than we think we have to do. But what we do have to do is keep showing up, keep being willing. Okay, can I just meet this moment? There's sometimes we can't. That's okay. Another way that um, we perceive permanence, and this also comes about through lack of continuity of awareness, but it also comes about because some of the constant change is very subtle and fine. So this is from Mahasi Sayadaw, actually. He says, there's a word in Pali called santati, and it says it refers to the continuity of phenomena. It says you mistake a series of successive phenomena for a single phenomenon. For example, if there's a continuity, things happen so fast that they seem like it's just one thing, not changing. And so you think you're seeing one thing and you don't recognize that it's constantly changing. I'll give an example. Um, I don't know if this works for you, it works for me, seeing. If I'm not really being very, if, if I'm not really making seeing the main kind of focus of my interest, of my awareness at a certain time, but we're just walking around, seeing just seems kind of steady state. You know, I'm seeing, 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 seeing is, is fairly continuous. If I tune into seeing, like we tune into hearing sometimes, if I tune into seeing, actually every single second, the visual field is different. It's like a different seeing arising in every single second. It's not the same for two fractions of a second together. But we mostly don't look that closely. You know, it's kind of in the background taking it for granted. And so the assumption we're not even aware of is kind of a steady state of seeing. Yeah. Or often... Um, when we're not looking carefully, a sound, and this is one you can really, I'm sure you've all noticed, where a sound might seem very steady and just lasting, and when we really tune in, you can feel how it breaks up, it rises and falls, you hear the vibrations, you feel the vibrations, and you really hear. It's a completely changing, moving phenomenon, even as it seems to be the same sound lasting. You get what I mean at all? Yeah. So this sense explore where you might notice this, the sense of phenomenon happening seemingly so steady that we don't notice, because we're not looking that carefully, that it's changing. So how to cultivate the perception of impermanence? The main thing is what I just said, the moment-to-moment willingness to just meet this moment with this moment, this moment, with their attention. You might notice, sometimes it can be a little bit reflective, not too much, not too much thinking, but a little bit reflective from time to time to notice when we're assuming permanence. Like, you might sometime look back over the day, how did your mind relate to different experiences that happened today? If something comes up and we get locked in this kind of fear or dread, or, oh, no, this is going to be going on all day, right? We're assuming permanence. I can't, I can't do t- two more weeks of this. No way, you know? In that moment, assuming permanence. Or do we kind of, it's pleasant, and we assume ownership of it. Oh, now this is how my practice is. Oh, now this is who I am. Oh, now I'm the person who can concentrate, you know? Assuming permanence. 
And even if we don't think we are clinging, if when it goes away you suffer, then we know, okay, so clinging was there. That's okay, but just knowing what's happening. Or do we try to repeat a particular experience? Oh, now I've gotten how to meditate. If I come into the hall early in the morning before everybody's here, and I can sit down, then when they come in, I can really tune into the hearing, and I just go into this peaceful place, and if no one turns on the lights, and if no one coughs, then I get back into that real, you know, you know what I mean? As if you could ever replicate all the conditions. Conditions are constantly changing, because it's that, that endlessly opening flow. And again, even this happened in the time of the Buddha. There's a sutta where uh, a monk who was quite well-practiced named Asaji was very ill to the point of being about to die. And um, the Buddha went and asked him, it was kind of a common thing they asked, I hope you're not troubled with remorse or regret, you know, in terms of your sila, in terms of your morality. And he said, no, not my sila, but I am troubled. And he said, what is, what are you troubled by? He said, well, formerly, when I was ill, I could keep on tranquilizing the bodily formations. In other words, I could get really concentrated. But now I cannot obtain concentration. And as I cannot obtain concentration, it occurs to me, oh no, let me not fall away. So let me not fall away from the path. I can't get concentrated. He's really upset. The guy's dying, you know. <laughs> and the Buddha basically said, you know, um, haven't I told you that conditions are always changing? If you know, if you think awakening is based on concentration, it's not. I'm paraphrasing here, but this is basically what he's saying. You know, is form permanent or impermanent? Are mental factors permanent or impermanent? It's basically, the conditions are different. Now you can't get concentrated. That's not the point. Insight is the point. So notice the conditions are always changing. Can we just die into this moment's conditions? with awareness, oh, now it's like this, now it's like this, now it's like this. Choki Nima Rinpoche says, watch the changeable nature of the mind. Using Vedan as a good example, just, just notice how much Vedana changes, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and watch how a pleasant Vedana can come along and sweep us so quickly into a whole world of thought and pleasure and imagination just notice that. And notice how an unpleasant Vedna can come along and we don't, and we swept into a whole world of judgment and recrimination and disappointment, all just based on this little moment of pleasant or unpleasant. Now, if you cannot judge it, but just watch how that happens, the constant changing, that's samsara. But you really see there's nothing steady state. Ajahn Chah has a great practice to just go through your day gently saying to yourself, this is uncertain. This is uncertain. Okay, tomorrow I'll get up and I'll come here and sit early in the morning. And this is uncertain. Not to get all, you know, intense about it, but just, yes, this too is uncertain. You really never know. This I went to, when I was going to Burma, I got a, an email uh, from a good friend who said he was really sick and in the hospital, but he'd be better soon and go to Hawaii. And I got home and got an email that he died. You know, this is uncertain. A good friend 
a long-term marriage, very happy. His wife went out shopping, her car skipped, skidded on ice, and she was killed. I mean, you just wake up in the morning and go shopping. This is uncertain. We all know a million stories like this. Not that we get lost in fear, but just the knowing of we don't know. So the last question might come up. Why would we want to perceive in this way? (laughs) Why would we want to live a life? This is uncertain. Every time our partner's going out shopping, we think, what if they skid and die? <laughs> no, that's, that's with fear. That's with negativity. But opening to the reality of the perception is not opening into fear and trauma and, you know, nowhere to land and I can't bear it. It frees our hearts and mind to really land with um, openness, with appreciation with with love, as I said, for the fragility of life, for the beauty of life, for whatever it is that's arising in this moment, because this is all there is. This is life in this moment. It's a kind of a radical trust that just right here is the only place truth can be. It's actually a much more alive and tender and connected. Of course it's connected because there's nothing, nothing separate. It's the clinging and the fear that makes it so hard. So we need the willingness to go through that. But really, it's not opening to some horrific, oh my God, you know, everything's just going to die. It's opening to a great appreciation for life as it is. So I just want to end with this poem that a a yogi reminded me of at the three-month retreat by Mary Oliver. Sort of gives the feeling. It's not exactly, but sort of gives the feeling. Oh, to love what is lovely and will not last. What a task to ask of anything or anyone. Yet it is ours, and not by the century or the year, but by the hours. One fall day I heard above me and above the sting of the wind a sound I did not know, and my look shot upward. It was a flock of snow geese winging it faster than the ones we usually see. And being the color of snow, catching the sun so they were, in part at least, golden. I held my breath, as we do sometimes, to stop time when something wonderful has touched us. As with a match, which is lit and bright, but does not hurt in the common way, but delightfully, as if delight were the most serious thing you ever felt. The geese flew on. I have never seen them again. Maybe I will someday, somewhere. Maybe I won't. It doesn't matter. What matters is that when I saw them, I saw them as through the veil, secretly, joyfully, clearly. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.